everyone, and welcome to Risky Business's coverage of OSSERT's 2011 conference on the Gold Coast. I'm Patrick Gray. This coverage of OSSERT's 2011 conference is brought to you by the fine folks at Microsoft. Without their support, there would be no OSSERT podcasts, so big thanks to them. And what I'm about to play here is a full presentation recorded here at the con. Uh, it's a great presentation by Mark Newton, an engineer with the ISP Internode, and it's all about IPv6. Now, Mark really knows his stuff. Uh, we all know that security considerations in IPv6 aren't generally that exciting, but Mark managed to actually make this presentation quite interesting and just a little bit thought-provoking. Uh, I didn't see the whole thing. I was popping in and out throughout the session. Uh, but yeah, it was definitely more interesting uh, than I was expecting, and it's a really nice roundup and overview uh, of IPv6 security concerns. So here it is, Mark Newton of Internode uh, with his take on IPv6 security. Enjoy. <laughs> set our networks up to deal, uh, to deal with them. So I'm going to start with an introduction to uh, the IPv6 concepts that I need in order to make the rest of the talk make sense. Um, I'm going to give a brief summary of how Internode as a service provider rolled IPv6 out into our network in the hope that that would be instructive to some of the rest of you who haven't done it yourself yet. Um, I'm going to do a bit of a compare and contrast of some uh, IPv6 versus IPv4 features and then start talking about some considerations for mapping IPv4 security concepts into the brave new world that we're about to be entering. A brief warning. Um, I had a conversation with someone in the bar the other night about whether or not they wanted to get into IPv6 yet and it struck me that a lot of the things that they were saying were similar to what Novell IPX network administrators used to say in the days before the internet became popular. Um, none of this is actually optional. We're, we are going to do it. Um, we, we, the cost of IPv4 will be escalating basically forever now. And for each individual organisation, there will be a cost threshold that you will reach where any objections that you have to starting with IPv6 start to fall asunder because it's cheaper to do the migration than not to do it. So you are going to do this eventually. It's not optional. The choice isn't do it or don't do it. It's going to be secure it or don't secure it. And that's kind of what I'm on about today. So let's kick off. Why are we talking about v6 in the first place? Why am I talking about it? You people mostly haven't been, have you? Um, my talk abstract says that uh, I'm aiming this at technical security practitioners, uh, no IPv6 knowledge assumed, so I'm going to spend a bit of time uh, giving a, a light explanation of, of where this is all coming from. So a bit of history. We have been here before. The internet grew out of the ARPANET research project, as we all know. That was in the late 1960s. And that used 8-bit addresses. Each network user generally only had one node in a site, so 256 of them seemed like enough. For a small-scale research network, a maximum of 256 addressable entities, oh, we'll never get to that point. Um, I've already had my thunder stolen uh, with a picture of an imp. This one's got the door closed so you can see the flashing lights, but it's probably exactly the same one. Um, this is the ARPANET equivalent of a router or a switch. Um, I don't know if you've ever visited the Computer History Museum in California, but highly recommended. That's uh, 14th of September 1978. We've gone through a little bit of scaling since then, 
and it turns out that it didn't end well. We've used up all of the addresses. Um, but the, the ARPANET, as I said, got there first. Eight-bit addresses weren't sufficient for the internet, obviously. But life was a bit simpler back then. ARPANET was a research project, and it wasn't in any way mission critical. So they were able to do something that we can't, which is at the beginning of 1983, they rebooted the whole thing and brought it up with a new protocol. Oh, if only we could do that. That new protocol was TCP IP, and that used 32-bit addresses. This time, for sure, that's uh, Vince Cerf, uh, who didn't actually say that. Um, 32 bits gives us 4 billion addresses. That should be enough forever, right? Turns out that you don't actually get 4 billion. It's impossible to use them with high efficiency in a world where you can't get a prefix longer than slash 24 into the global routing table because everybody filters you. Yes, some people do filter, Jeff. Uh, so it's better to think of it as 16 million slash 24 networks, uh, which is a decidedly smaller number. It took 28 years to consume them all, and stolen off of Jeff's website, here's the time series of what it all looked like when it was happening. And you can see the, the evolution of the internet here. From 1990 until the late 90s, you can see that the, the uh, slope of that curve was, was quite quite steep, you can imagine extrapolating the initial part of that curve in a straight line, we would have run out a lot sooner than we did. But around the mid to late 90s, we introduced classless interdomain uh, inter routing, CIDR, and that caused the, the growth rate of, uh, of IPv4 allocations to slow down a lot. That bought us about 10 years. Then you can see the slope starting to accelerate again after 2000. That's when broadband came along. Before broadband, ISPs would have enough IP addresses to give one to each modem. Because no matter how many customers they had, they would only have the, the equivalent number of customers online as they had modems. And when you hung up the modem and went off and did something else, the next person who dialed in would get your address again. When broadband came along, everybody is online all the time. So whether they're using the internet or not, they still need an address. The growth rate started skyrocketing all the way up until February this year. No more. End of story. So IPv4 addresses are a bit like the trees on Easter Island. We, we've built up this wondrous internet civilization using a non-renewable resource, and now it's all gone. What do we do now? Well, we do have stock of addresses still. Um, we can renumber to recover more if customers decide to play ball. How many of you would like to be forcibly renumbered by your ISP? Um, uh, don't necessarily say no, because you might not be asked when it happens. Um, we can also recover addresses by redefining services, which is a nice little colloquialism for saying enforcing NAT on you, whether you like it or not. I reckon I can divide the TCP and UDP port space up into groups of about 65 blocks of 1,000 port numbers and give each of you one of those blocks. And for a lot of you, or maybe for a lot of your parents, um, you wouldn't notice. So that would be a form of NAT. We could, we could get 64, 65 people onto each IP address by cutting down on the number of ports we gave them. So, I mean, it's not going to work very well. It's going to be a disaster. Um, it's, it's going to be expensive, both for ISPs and for end users. But it isn't all bad yet, because we still have some left. 
So it's actually more like this. What if all the oil-producing nations got together and said, you know what, we've run out, but there are still a billion barrels of crude floating around the oceans on oil tankers? That's, that's pretty much the situation we're in now with IPv4. Supply has halted at the source, but we're still growing at the point of demand. Um, now, an example of something that, that Internode as an ISP might do, our ADSL services right now are architected around a, a, um, a, a resiliency architecture that means that if one of our major pops in each city, like if, if Brisbane has a major failure, like a flood or something, and, and one of the pops goes offline, we have enough infrastructure in the other pop to carry our entire customer base for that state. Now, that means that we need to provision each pop with enough IP addresses to carry the entire customer load of that state. We actually have 2N IP addresses right now. But you can bet your bottom dollar that very, very soon that level of resiliency for residential customers will go away. So the first thing that, as an ISP, we are going to have to do is start turning down the levels of service, the levels of reliability on certain classes of service. And if you think that that resiliency and reliability is important to you, you might have to pay more to get a fixed IP address and different treatment. And as we run out of even our 2N addresses, as you know, growth causes us to chew up more, we'll have to get more and more onerous about how we deal with that. Eventually, we'll reach a point of onerousness where, where our customers decide that IPv6 is actually easier and they can just leap out of the whole mess. So that'll send a bit of a price signal. And if your network needs to grow, it'll be more expensive after February this year than it used to be because the addresses that you need will no longer be free and the price will increase based on demand. Demand isn't going away, but supply has. But we're not here to talk about economics. Let's just say I'm glad I'm not starting a new ISP anywhere in the world this year. So that's why we're moving towards an IPv6 internet. We have a world of looming shortages in V4. V6 is the way out. So although it's expensive and a pain in the butt and we all have to learn new skills and we have all these new threats and opportunities and what have you, it's still the way out. We're just going to have to do it. It's just a question of when. So what changes does that entail? I want to take some IPv4 concepts that you will find familiar and then stretch them into their, their loose and rough and ready IPv6 equivalents. Not all the concepts map cleanly, but my idea, my idea here, what I'm trying to do is get those of you in the room who haven't even thought about this stuff to start to understand that it isn't actually that hard. A lot of the, um, the, the complications about IPv6, I think, as someone who's been using it since 2007 in production, are overstated. It's not as hard as it looks. So what we have in IPv6 is a new layer 3 protocol. This is sort of the, the usual um, protocol stack for IP. We have the physical layer, wires and bits of glass down the bottom, data link layer like Ethernet or PPP, and IP sits on top of that, and then we have our, our transport layer protocols on top of that, and we use them in our applications. In the IPv6 world, we will carry our applications and our transport layer protocols on a new layer 3 protocol called IPv6. By and large, the rest of that diagram stays exactly the same. By and large. How hard can it be? 
Let's look at some cosmetics. Um, 128-bit addresses, that's one of the attributes that IPv6 has. Uh, that's why we'll probably never run out, maybe, again, we'll see. 32-bit uh, addresses in the IPv4 world are the ones that we all know and love. They look like um, four decimal octets separated by dots. Uh, in the IPv6 world, we have these, these enormously long monstrosities, eight hexadecimal digits separated by colons. Um, I reckon the DNS is going to be a lot more important in the IPv6 world, but I also reckon a lot of people who deal with DNS haven't started thinking about that yet. DNS is actually a massively complicated part of the transition. Uh, at Internode, we still haven't finished working out how we're going to do it. Um, there are some technical problems there that haven't been solved, which I'll, I'll get onto in a few minutes later in the talk. Um, CIDR not notation, CIDR notation, um, that works pretty much the same way. In the IPv4 world, we'd have an address, and it's pretty much meaningless without a net mask to go with it. We can either represent the net mask in decimal form or in CIDR notation. CIDR notation just means that we convert the decimal form into binary and count the ones. Okay, so, so 255, 255, oh, 255.255.248.0 becomes slash 21, for instance. In the v6 world, it's exactly the same. We're converting hexadecimal numbers to binary and counting the ones, but other than that, it's, it's the same as v4. The most common masks tend to be slash 32, slash 48, slash 64. They're aligned on 16-bit boundaries because that's where the colons are and it's just easy to get your head around the conversions that way. So you can imagine a slash 64 subnet. Um, if you have an address like that, you can mark out where all the bit positions are corresponding to the colons. And at the slash 64 boundary, the bit to the left of that is your network address. The bit to the right of that is your host address or interface identifier. And, um, and you know, that's, it works in exactly the same way as IPv4. Except for the fact that you don't have to worry about the network number and the broadcast number being unusable because you don't have network numbers or broadcast numbers. So you get two extra addresses out of your 11 gazillion, billion, trillion. <laughs> so in IPv4, sending a packet to the all ones address in a subnet produces a broadcast. In IPv6, we don't have broadcasts. What we have instead is a heavy reliance on multicast for everything that requires the interaction of more than two nodes. So if I want to find out who the routers are on a subnet, I can send an ICMP query to a multicast address that all of the routers subscribe to. There's another multicast address that all the hosts subscribe to. There's another one that's roughly equivalent to a broadcast address that everything's supposed to subscribe to. But it's not broadcast frames. You, you shouldn't see broadcast frames on your ethernet in an IPv6 world. You'll see lots of multicast frames. Multicast built in, are you familiar with it? <laughs> how, how much multicast experience have you had in your life up until now? Um, yeah, yeah. Fetch TV, yeah, any Fetch TV subscribers in here? You're using multicast, amazing. Sorry? <laughs> yes. In the IPv4 world, TCP and UDP are the two most common layer 4 protocols, and ICMP is used for control plane functions. In the IPv6 world, TCP and UDP are the same as they were in v4. 
ICMP is still used for control plane functions, but it is a lot more important than it is in the IPv4 world. Those of you who block ICMP on your firewalls really need to stop. ICMP is not an optional part of the TCP IP protocol suite. Address assignment. This is, this is what, what blows people's minds. It, it makes IPv6 fairly, uh, fairly easy to work with, but creates some vulnerabilities as well that I'll cover in due course. In the IPv4 world, when you plug a host into a network, you'll generally either give it a static address or you'll use something like DHCP to configure it. And they're, they're kind of, they're, they're your choices, the sum total of what your choices are. In the IPv6 world, almost all of your addresses are defined dynamically, assigned dynamically, with a method that is intrinsic to the IPv6 protocol. It's called stateless address auto-configuration, or SLAC for short. DHCP is still available, but it differs from IPv4 DHCP. Differs to the extent that I really wish they'd chosen a different name for it, because by calling it DHCP in the new world, you make everyone think it's the same. In the V6 world, having multiple addresses on one host is completely normal and expected. Uh, in the V4 world, if you're playing with Linux boxes or something, you'll often put IP aliases on an Ethernet interface. In the V6 world, that happens all the time. It's quite rare for a, for a network interface to have only one address on it. So let's look at how stateless autoconfig works. It's a simplified view of it anyway. Consider a new host booting up. It's just arrived on the network. It has no configuration on it at all. What it will do is calculate a default link local address. So this is an address in a special part of, of the IPv6 address space, which is reserved for link local. These are addresses that hosts can use to communicate between them, each other on a single subnet, so if you don't have to go through a router, and you don't have to configure them. They're usually calculated from something like the MAC address of a network interface or, or something like that. So you, you plug in your v6 host and they, they just appear. Using that link local address, the host will send a, or create a, a router solicitation, ICMP v6 message. And the destination of that router solicitation will be the multicast address that all routers are supposed to subscribe to. The source of it will be the link local address for that host. Protocol, ICMP v6, message type, router solicitation. It will hurl that out onto the wire. Every router on that Ethernet segment will see that FF01 double colon 2 address and go, ah, that's me. And all of them will respond with a router announcement. On most networks, you'll probably only have one router, so the host will get the router announcement coming back. The source address in that RA message will be the interface on the router that you need to send to in order to use it as a default gateway. The destination address is the link local address that originated the request in the first place. The host can have a look at the, um, at, at the source address on that RA message and go, right, that must mean that my 64-bit prefix is 2001-44B812345. So it will use that to configure its own unicast global address. So what we've seen here is that 
you can get a host with no configuration whatsoever, plug it into a network running IPv6, and it will create internet reachability for itself. Don't have to configure it. It could be you know, a corporate workstation in an SOE, or it could be someone's iPad, or whatever. It doesn't matter. It, it just works, which is really handy in, say, a residential environment, but maybe in a corporate environment it's not so hot. <laughs> So there is static configuration available still, and DHCP assignment is also available, not often used, but maybe it will be on corporate networks. A flag in the RA message can indicate to the host that it isn't supposed to do stateless address auto configuration. It's instead supposed to work out what prefix it's using and then make a DHCP v6 query to get the rest of its address. So you do have some control. You just need to configure your routers to say, when sending a router advertisement, tell all the hosts that this is managed address space from a DHCP server somewhere. A little bit of extra config you need. There's also a mechanism called duplicate address detection. With all the hosts calculating their own addresses, that 64-bit that suffix is calculated by the host. It's not assigned by something else on the network. You don't actually have any way of making sure that two hosts haven't picked the same 64-bit su uh, suffix. 64 bits is a lot of address space, so it's vanishingly unlikely. But I don't know, maybe some of you users are psychopaths and they, they specifically statically configure them. I don't know. There, there's a mechanism called duplicate address detection which uses ICMP6 to resolve cases where there are address clashes and automatically rectify them. So that's enough of the basics to get by with. Let's look at how to implement it, how to get it onto your network. Well, at the very least, how we got it onto our network. I think it went pretty well for us, and you might like to duplicate it. It's also entirely possible that you have better ideas for your situation. Our goal at Internode is to run v4 and v6 simultaneously over the same infrastructure, dual stack. We actually want to do that for everything. All of our customer-facing services, all of our internal systems, our Wi-Fi hotspot networks, you name it, everywhere. The good news is you don't have to do it all at the same time. It's, it's not like prefix, routing in, uh, prefix filtering in, in BGP. You, you can do it piecemeal, and that's pretty much the approach that we took. We, we started at the outside and then worked inwards to our core network, and there was no need to do the whole network at once. So let's have a look at... This is a network map. Oh, she comes out better on that display than this one. How about that? Um, Network map, this, this shows the, the extent of our international network at the moment. You can see Australia down in the bottom left corner. The, the red dots are the major pops in capital cities. The, uh, the blue dots on the map are our international gateways. So we started getting v6 into our network by lighting up one IPv6 BGP session to a transit provider in San Jose. It was uh, NTT who had been running a v6 backbone for a long, long time. That put AS4739, which is Internode's AS, onto the V6 map, and it provided that router and only that router with global V6 connectivity. So we could trace route to all the three or four sites on the internet that were running IPv6. <laughs> Los Angeles quickly followed because we'd rather not do one of anything. Um, then after that, we brought it into Sydney and the parts in between, that brought IPv6 to the Australian mainland on our network for the first time. This, this bit happened over the course of two nights. We did it in San Jose first, 
and then we sort of let it sit down and burn in and make sure nothing was going to explode or crash or something. And then the following night, when we were convinced it was stable, we went and did the same thing in LA and Sydney. So that brought IPv6 to Australia. And then we spread it out through the rest of the country, Adelaide, Melbourne, Hobart, Brisbane, Perth, and then we did the rest of the international network. We did that as low-impact um, change advisories. Like we, we put advisories up on our website saying that we were doing each of these things. We put them in as, as low priority, not expected to cause any outage, you know, short change windows, easy backouts, all that kind of stuff. So it went through our change control system fairly easily, and the whole thing took slightly over a month. So that's to get from no IPv6 at all to IPv6 throughout the, the core backbone network of an ISP with international reach. It's not that hard. We did it with a few low-impact changes during maintenance windows a couple of times per week. None of our customers noticed, except when we had an iOS bug in Perth, which was actually really weird. The, uh, Perth, there was a 7200 in Perth that was running an iOS that would take the first 32 bits of each IPv6 prefix in the IPv6 routing table and then just kind of shove it into the IPv4 routing table. I don't know. So we ended up with all these slash 32s in our IPv4 routing table that didn't appear anywhere else. It's not meant to work like that. Yeah, iOS upgrade fixed it. That was, that was the only bug throughout that part, that phase of the project. So it was all fairly low impact. Um, after the first few routers were done, the rest of it ran on Rails. We make fairly heavy use of configuration automation at Internode. Uh, we, we like to avoid touching a router with human hands. Literally none of our BGP configuration is done manually. It all comes out of databases. That means that you can make some changes to the configuration software that controls your routers and then just push out changes and all the routers see it and you hope it's right. Yeah. Shut down the whole network at the same time. We haven't done that yet. <laughs> we have further work to go on with. Uh, we're currently carrying out a multi-year project to dual stack all of our applications and service offerings. Um, those of you who are our customers might have noticed that if you have CPE that supports IPv6, you can change your DSL PPP username to whatever it usually is and put at ipv6.internode.on.net at the end of it and you get dual stack. Um, it, it just works. We're in the process of taking that out of its trial environment at the moment and pushing it out into our production environment. We're, we're, doing, uh, we're doing Perth next week. That's the starting point for that. Brisbane will be um, probably a week after that and then we'll sort the rest of the country out. We expect to have the trial environment uh, discarded in about a month, but we'll keep running it on a trial basis on the production infrastructure until we have some more software work finished. Um, not quite sure when that's going to finish, but it's probably around the July timeframe. I reckon that's pretty good progress because I did a presentation for SageIU in Hobart in September and there was a grand total of one ADSL2 plus modem on the market that we could use. Now our entire product range supports it. All of the CPE that Internode sells supports dual stack now. And that's since September. How cool is that? Uh, Netcom uh, is, is actually one of the stars in this. They've, they've got a, um, the Netcom uh, NB6 plus 4W is, a, is like an $80 ADSL2 plus modem you can buy at, at Harvey Norman. And, and 
Netcom used our trial platform to develop software for it. We know that because they sent us a completely unsolicited uh, beta test unit that still had their ipv6.interno.net username configured into it. So it's, the, the trial has been a, a, a wonderful success as far as, I'm, as far as I'm concerned. We've got several hundred users on it. It's about, about 600 users now at the moment. Um, and uh, and, and the, the CPE vendors have been, have been using it well. Uh, we've learned a lot out of it, so that's why we're moving it on to the next stage now. The other thing that we're doing as part of our own V6 efforts are things like, like this. We're, we're doing consumer media and community education and outreach aimed at facilitating an, an informed decision among the internet community in Australia. I, I know there are lots of few in this room who aren't internet customers and probably never will be, but that's all right. We figure it's in our own best interest to, to make sure that everyone understands about IPv6. It's in the internet's best interest that everyone understands it. So that's why I'm doing things like this. This is like my sixth conference in September or something where I've been talking about it. It's to, to get the word out and get people thinking about it and, and how they're going to integrate it into their own enterprises. So that's all pretty easy. Um, let's, let's go on to some things to think about. This is a security conference. So let's have a think about security. IPv6 is new. We're still working through some of the issues, some of the, the provisioning issues, rollout, and security. IPv4 is old, but we don't have all the answers there either, but we seem to muddle on regardless. Nobody has all the answers yet, but that shouldn't be any more alarming than staying with the status quo, especially given that over the next few years, the IPv4 status quo is going to turn into a quagmire. The only people who think we've solved all of the security problems with IPv4 are the vendors who want to sell us the solutions. IPv6 has a lot of rough edges, but so does IPv4. Is one worse than the other? Probably not. Is one better than the other? Definitely not. They're just different. Relax. Learn about it and get on with it. It's not scary. Just, just learn. It's all good. So here's some random security-related highlights which I've brainstormed that, uh, that we can consider together. Um, some of you who have played with it already might have some more that we can cover in the Q&A session afterwards. Um, we can turn it into maybe a bit of a discussion. No private address space in IPv6. IPv4 has engineering address space, RFC 1597. IPv6 has no equivalent. Unicast Local doesn't count because Unicast Local is all the stuff that Jeff was talking about earlier made worse by the fact that there is no equivalent of somebody like APNIC to do the registry function. So all of the addresses are public. Yes, all of them, including the ones behind your firewall. You go to your ISP or you become an APNIC member and you get public address space. You don't make your own addresses up anymore. Have you ever merged two organisations who are both using Net10 behind their firewall? It's an absolute nightmare. The first subnet that every com company ever uses is 10.1. So, so right from the word go, you have a conflict and you have to renumber networks all over the place. And, and then, then just as you finish, the company that you're doing it for buys another company and you have to start all over again. Absolute nightmare. 
With v6, that will never happen because everyone's using public addresses. Public addresses will be lodged in a registry and certified to be globally unique. So when two organisations merge, there's just a routing decision to get from one organisation to the other. It's easy. You won't have NAT. You might think you'll get NAT if you yell loudly enough at your vendor. But it'll be a poorly maintained mess that will never work very well, and you'll orphan yourself in a little gnat island while the rest of the internet moves towards a world where peer-to-peer -peer reachability is assumed. Then you'll finally relent and turn off NAT and use public addresses as soon as someone deploys the first popular application which doesn't implement any form of firewall traversal. Because in the v6 world, you don't need firewall traversal because you don't have to work through NAT gateways. So you can either stay in denial and insist on NAT up until you change your mind, or you can save yourself a lot of time and hassle by changing your mind now. You'll still have stateful inspection firewalls, but no NAT. Get used to it. Get over it. It's gone. Addresses are public. So have a think about what NAT's actually doing for you. What security policy objectives is it serving? I reckon it hides your internal network from the outside world, and that's, that's what most people cite when they talk about how, how brilliant NAT is. You, know, you can be running public address space on the outside and private inside, and everything's hunky-dory. But why? Doesn't your firewall protect your, outside network, uh, your inside network from the outside anyway? Isn't that what you spend all that money on firewalls for? I can tell you what your internal network looks like anyway. Unless you're certifiably insane, it looks the same as everybody else's. You, you've got a border, you've got distribution, you've got access. What are you trying to hide? What, what policy objectives is NAT giving you? Equipment support. Does your firewall support v6? Any firewall vendors in here? No, okay, good, we can talk about them. We can also talk about IDS vendors. Um, do any of them support v6? Um, none of the DPI vendors do, that's why BitTorrent is moving towards v6. Have you enabled v4 and v6 controls on your hosts? Some of them you might have, some of them you haven't. I know from personal experience that on a Cisco router, as soon as you enable IPv6, you also have to put IPv6 access control lists on your VTYs, otherwise people can do a V6 telnet onto your VTY ports and have administrative control over your router. Because your V4 access lists don't work in the V6 world and vice versa. Two different protocols, ships passing in the night. This is the mindset you need to get into. If you have security policy in the V4 world, you need to teleport it over to the V6 world and make sure that you have equivalent outcomes, otherwise you'll get bitten. Are you capable of doing that? Can you apply the same perimeter security policy across v4 and v6 at the same time? Are there protocol differences or application differences or whatever differences that mean that you can't do it the same way on both protocols? Work it out. You might need to do something else. Remember, hosts will run both protocols at the same time. They will need protection on both protocols. And different operating systems and different firewalls do this to different degrees of safety and resiliency. Vulnerability scanning. It's not possible. Jeff covered this. This is how many addresses there are in a slash 64 subnet. It's four billion times larger than the entire v4 internet. Bit of perspective. At 1,000 addresses per second, it'll take about 6 million years to scan one subnet. 
you can probably work that to your advantage. Attackers can't scan you. That's probably another reason why you don't need NAT. Do attackers care whether they can scan you anyway? They have lots of other ways of finding your addresses. They can put, they can put transparent GIFs on a website somewhere and just look at their HTTP access logs to see where the requests have come from. It's not hard to work out who someone is. So perhaps it won't make any difference to them. Um, I'm, I'm thinking that, um, that this is kind of the, the comparative approach between geeks and everybody else for how to approach something like this. Um, RFC 5157 actually lists a number of, of ways that, um, that, that you can find out, or that a malware author can find out an end user's address um, without, without needing to do address scans. So there's, there's always one way to do it, uh, more than one way to do it. Vulnerability scanning. Turns out attackers aren't trying to do it anyway. Um, Darknet research has been carried out. There's where it's published. So perhaps V6 will kill some aspect of black hack scanning on the internet, but meh. You can't scan your own networks either, though. Any of you PCI compliant? <laughs> Moving right along. Privacy, um, EUI64, the, the stateless auto-configured IP addresses. Um, the, the, when they use the EUI64 hashing algorithm to calculate an IP address for a MAC address, that's a constant. You'll have the same 64-bit suffix no matter where you are. So as you move around the world, as you move around networks, that 64-bit suffix is a tracking token, even if you're using NAT. Do you want everybody to know where you are, to track you? We're in a world where people who don't even know how to spell IP get excited about eavesdropping when Google listens to public Wi-Fi broadcasts and Apple logs your location on, their, on your iPhone and there's public controversy about the government pondering uh, um, data retention legislation that would make everyone record IP addresses. And here we are building a tracking token right into the fabric of the new protocol that the Internet's based on. Consider privacy extensions. Um, there's an RFC 4941 uh, which randomizes the last 64 bits of, of your IP address every 20 minutes. It's not always on by default. It's not always available. Um, since um, uh, iPhones and iPad software version 4.3, it has been enabled by default, but my uh, MacBook Pro has it turned off. Uh, Windows enables it. So depending on which platform you're using, you may or may not have privacy extensions either available or enabled. You probably should find out. I know some corporates would like the idea that, that everyone has a constant address and they can track them, but think about what happens when, that, when a portable device leaves the office and goes to unsecured networks with the same 64-bit suffix where it can be tracked. We know about rogue DHCP servers. What about rogue RAs? Those router announcements, they can be sent by anybody. Does your switch vendor support RA guard? That's, that's a, um, a feature that makes this, uh, uh, an Ethernet switch filter RA messages unless they come from a port that's been specifically configured to allow them. So when you plug a router into an Ethernet switch, you, you say on that port, RAs are allowed to originate from here, but all of the rest of the ports have RA guard enabled on them, so those ports can't. I know that if you don't have that, man-in-the-middle attacks are really easy. 
Um, I, on, on like four out of five Wi-Fi hotspot networks, I can set up my MacBook Pro with a router advertisement daemon that sends RA messages and hosts elsewhere in the hotspot network who have IPv6 turned on by default will go, aha, there's a default gateway, and they'll start sending IPv6 traffic to me. Where's the traffic actually going on those hotspots? There are lots of tools here, mostly related to RA spoofing. Learn about how this works. RAs are the one bit that isn't protected by any form of security in this brave new world of protocols that we're about to adopt. You're blocking ICMP? Don't. Here's what you'll break if you keep doing it. If you must block it, carefully think about which parts of it you're blocking, which message types. Think about why and what you're actually trying to achieve and what policy objectives you're attaining. Have a read of this RFC. That gives you some guidelines for which ICMP messages are safe to filter in which circumstance. So there are some that you can filter on a border router. There are some that you wouldn't want to filter on a workgroup switch. There, there are things that, that break. Like as things as basic as neighbour detection uh, in IPv6 use ICMP. Um, so on a LAN, blocking ICMP is roughly equivalent to blocking ARP in an IPv4 world. Does that sound clever? Break everything, wouldn't it? But don't do it. Are you running v6 on your enterprise networks yet? How do you know? We have these things called transition technologies where all of our desktop operating systems can automatically set up tunnels to send IPv6 elsewhere. So if it's not available, they can use it anyway. It's out there. Many of your hosts will be doing it by default. Teredo, 6 to 4, none of them work very well, but all of them get used. So you may already have IPv6 on your corporate network. Under whose security policy? Have a think about that. Here, this, is, this one's a classic. This is a, um, a write-up of a zero-day exploit for uh, Windows that uses forged RA messages to create a man-in-the-middle attack. And the write-up includes the quote, since the victims aren't using IPv6, they won't be expecting an attack that makes use of it. Think about what you're trying to achieve. You want security policy consistency across both protocols. Both of them run the same TCP and UDP and the same applications. So you want the, all those controls to be consistent across both protocols. IPv6 policy should be the same as v4 policy. Where that isn't possible for technical reasons, design some alternatives, change the policy, consider threat model differences, whatever you need to do to achieve policy nirvana where you don't create back doors into your network caused by someone being able to enter it using an alternative protocol. There's no point putting up a great big buttress drawbridge in front of v4 and having a screen door for v6. You actually want to use exactly the same drawbridge. You don't even want to use two of them. You want one. <laughs> Almost all the differences are in layer three and below, so it's not actually that hard to work through, um, but you do need to think about it. Expect wrinkles. So that's my random grab bag of, of things to start thinking about. It's, it's going to be a wild ride. For various reasons, the transition has been carried out late, and it's all feeling a bit rushed. You might occasionally be the first person in the world to do whatever it is that you're trying to do with IPv6. Whatever you do could later be called industry best practice, <laughs> or it could get written up in ZDNet. <laughs> Please think carefully about it. Thank you. Time for questions?
Yep, time for a question or two, okay. Yes. I think service, so the question was any advice for service providers who are publishing services to, websites. yeah, websites. Well, yeah, rather than looking at corporate networks, you're looking at networks that are sitting out there on the internet that people are supposed to be coming to, content of some kind. Yeah, um, I actually think the content people are going to be the first on board with V6 because they kind of have to be. No one who is, whose business is based on transmitting content onto the internet is going to want to have their business model completely wrecked by some ISP's buggy uh, NAT gateway. So I think it's in a content provider's best interest to move towards dual stack as quickly as they can, even though the eyeballs aren't there to use V6 yet, so that as eyeballs transition to V6, everything's already there waiting for them. That's kind of the point, or part of the point, of, um, of uh, Worldwide V6 Day, which is on June the 8th, when uh, Google and Facebook and Yahoo and a whole bunch of others are turning on V6 for 24 hours just to see what happens. We'll run an internet-wide experiment. Um, I think it'll probably go quite smoothly, but, but in order to do that, they've all had to do a lot of work to get their own service offerings dual-stacked so that they can participate in the day. I think the more of that, the better. The question was on World IPv6 Day, will there be enough V6 users to make a difference? The people who are participating in it will be doing as many packet captures as they can, and they will be looking for the one connection attempt in 100,000 or whatever the hell it is that fails because they're running dual stack. So what they're actually trying to do is have V4 and V6 working simultaneously and have their DNS serving out V4 and V6 resource records and see what breaks. And they only need a small number of IPv6 users to be able to do that. Uh, for most people, it'll either work or it won't, and they'll be able to see where it won't. For instance, they'll see, uh, you know, if, if you're Google and you're in control of your own DNS servers, you can see when someone has requested a quad A record and maybe you've received a SYN packet on, uh, with uh, a TCP SYN packet carried by V6 but haven't got any SYN acts. You can sort of see that that's happened. Someone's made the attempt but haven't gotten through. That's, that's the kind of stuff that they'll be looking for. Yeah, so, so the question is, will the big guys find the transition easy because they have lots of clue to apply to it? Will the little guys find it easy because their networks are small and it's easy? And someone else will tell them what to do. Yeah, what to do. And will the people in the middle have the difficulty? I think you're grossly overestimating the competence of the big guys. <laughs> I think if, if I'm in... <laughs> I think, I think if, if I'm in charge of a small network that has like two LANs and a couple of prefixes, migrating to V6 is easy for me, and I probably don't even need my ISP to tell me how to do it. But the big guys who have 20 years' worth of legacy that they need to forklift upgrade or reboot or reconfigure or whatever... That's just their management. That's just their management, yes. <laughs> they'll have a big problem. Thank you for destroying my false knowledge. Oh, fine, any <laughs> One more? Um, yes. I think V6 will start ramping up kind of about now, slowly but accelerating. I think V4 will be with us for a long, long, long time, but it will get deprecated over time in much the same way that IPX has. 
No one ever said IPX is going to stop working. They just moved on to something else. And little enclaves of IPX stayed around on various people's networks for a decade after they stopped doing it. I think IPv4 is going to be the same. It's going to be a little bit worse than that, though, because as demand for it increases, the only way to meet the demand will be to NAT it. So what I think we will see in the ongoing future is that everybody will have at least two addresses. One of them is a unicast global IPv6 address that has full world reachability, and that's their preferred way of getting to the internet. And for legacy applications, they'll have an IPv4 address that might be behind three or four NAT gateways and never really works very well. No, I mean four to four NAT. Yeah. We're done. Thank you. Thank you.